Join me, please, as we begin our time of worship in the Word in prayer. Father, you are faithful, worthy of praise. You have blessed us abundantly in that what we have known of you as your children is grace, love, and mercy. You've redeemed our lives from the pit and crowned us with glory. You have washed us through the blood of Jesus Christ and made us pure and right before you. We have confidence that we will spend eternity with you, not because we we have established a righteousness of our own, but because of a righteousness granted to us through faith in Jesus Christ. We are just amazed. Help us now as we worship you considering the book of Ecclesiastes, the wise words of Solomon and his earthly pursuits, but more more than that, the inspired writing here based upon your spirit who brought Solomon from the depths of emptiness to a place of purpose beyond compare. Help us that we would have this purpose, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What is your favorite movie? I'm sure it's different from person to person what your favorite movie is. Do you still enjoy watching it? Probably the answer to that is yes. That's why it's your favorite movie. Could you watch it every day and experience the same pleasure and joy on day 890, or if it's an older movie, day fill in the blank, would you still enjoy it just as much? You know all of the transitions. You know all of the lines. You can, you can mimic the lines of this movie. Is it as riveting when you watch it now as it was those first dozen or so times when, when you were really, uh, really enthused by it? Well, some, some movies, like I could watch the Marvel movies over and over again. However, while it's going on, I'm doing something else because I already know what's going on. So like, it's a multitasking. Whatever that other item of, of my energy is going into, I know exactly what's going on in the movie because I've, I've seen it enough. I enjoy it enough to watch it again. But it's not captivating to the point that I, I have to put all of my concentration into it. The best of this world's pleasures lose some of the discovery pleasure that we first experience. The best of this world's pleasures lose some of the discovery pleasure that we first experience upon experiencing it. Solomon lays this pathway out for us as he investigates how to find purpose and sustaining satisfaction in life. It's very interesting how he portrays this. We have to understand he throws the punchline at the beginning and recaps it at the end that it's vanity 
that it's useless, but he does not tell us that it's not fun. Look at verse 10. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found what? Pleasure in all my toil, and this pleasure was my reward for all my toil. He had a blast in all of his pursuits. However, he lets us know that it is not ultimately fulfilling. Verse 11, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. I had a blast. So, so much fun eating and drinking and partying and, and being entertained and having people serve me and building these things and looking at all the things I had built. It was so much fun. It was, it was grand fun. However, the party on day 714 kind of had lost a little bit of the joy. The first day, it was like the greatest thing. And on day 27, I kind of kicked it up a notch because it was losing a little bit of its pleasure. And on day 300, we kicked it up to an all-new high. And yet, it just seems to not have the same pizzazz. It did not sustain what I was seeking to get from these pleasures. He lets us know of his purposes here in verses 1 through 3. Look at what he says. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I couldn't grab a hold of life based on this. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold, grasp on folly till I might see what was good. Till I might see what was good, what was pleasing, what was purposeful for the children of Adam, children of man, to do under heaven. All these days during the few days of their life. The few days of their life. He's letting us know he's on this pursuit to find lasting satisfaction and purpose. He headlines it with, it doesn't, you can't grab it. It's not going to work. He, he follows it up by saying, it's mad. It's, it's crazy. It, it's not working. It, it, it doesn't provide what it, what it purports to provide. It, it is useless as far as finding purpose. As far as finding lasting satisfaction. It doesn't work. He's letting us know this right to start. Solomon's laying this out, and so the first item of our consideration as we follow his rationale, as we follow his argument, is this. Self-indulgent pursuits do not produce purpose. Self-indulgent pursuits do not produce purpose. Fun? Yes. Purpose? No. He's already explored the purpose of life through wisdom, and he came up empty. Now the preacher moves on to explore meaning through pursuits of pleasure and self-indulgence. And one writer, Douglas O'Donnell, writes this, and I think it, it really it, it captures this in a very succinct sentence. 
within the house of hedonism, hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure, within the house of hedonism, there are many rooms. There are many ways that he pursued after pleasure. And I'm going to steal our thunder. Solomon, with all of his resources, his, his wealth, and his prominence, could pursue after pleasure in a way that nobody in this room that nobody under the sound of my voice, nobody had at their, has at their disposal what Solomon had. So when he pursued after pleasure with all of his means and he came up with a big, fat, juicy air burger, what does that tell you that our pursuits after pleasure are going to come up with? Oh, no. No, I'm going to throw some, some cheddar on that air burger. If you throw cheddar on an air burger, what do you have? Cheddar. It might taste good, but you didn't really get a lot out of it, right? He's, he's letting us know about this. So, what does he try? Well, in verse 2, he tries comedy. He tries comedy. I said of laughter, it is mad. He, he tried. If we can laugh our way through life, not taking things seriously, we can feel good about life. Come and, come and tell me a joke. Tell me a joke. Let me watch another comedy skit. You know, comedy takes the edge off sometimes, doesn't it? Because here you are, dealing with all the seriousness of life, and someone starts making jokes about life, and you're like, all right, yeah, I got it, I got it. And it kind of, it takes a little bit of the burden off. It, it lifts it. But you know what it doesn't do? It doesn't take the sorrow and pain of life away. It can't. How many comedians have taken their own lives? They were funny. They could turn a good line, and I'm not belittling them in any way. They, they were pursuing a way out of their pain. And what they found out is, I can laugh, but when I stop laughing, the pain is still there. I might be able to overlook the difficulties, but when I'm finished with the party, the pain is still there. What do I do now? Comedy doesn't get the job done. Reality, reality. How, how many pains does life have? They're innumerable. And they don't go away through laughing. Laughter does, does do good like a medicine. Proverbs 17.22 tells us that. But it doesn't take the cause of our pain away. So Solomon pursued after comedy, and he found out this is madness. This is not going to get the job done. And then he pursues another way. He, he, he tries every available substance. He uses the word wine. That's fine. He uses wine to cheer his body. Wine has that effect. It can, it can make you feel like everything's okay. You could smoke a joint, and you can feel like, hey, man, everything's just fine. But you know what? The joint will wear off. And reality will smack you right back in the face. Cheering our body with substances, it doesn't work. He said it, it's useless. It's not going to get the job done. He tries all manner of foolishness, verse 3. He said, I, I, I searched, verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom. We'll come back to that. And how to lay hold or grab... On folly. Lay hold on folly. Remember that word grab. It kind of brings us back to that concept of 
vanity. I'm trying to grab onto something and I can't quite get it. My, my, my life is not fulfilled as I'm pursuing these things. I'm getting vanity. I'm, I'm going to try to grab a hold on folly. This will do it. The word folly means foolishness. Foolishness. It's translated that way numerous times in our Old Testament. Foolishness. I just figure out, I'll, I'll just play my way through life. I'll mess around with this. I'll mess around with that. I'll mess around with this one. I'll mess around with those people. And all the foolishness, and it's all, when it's all said and done, it still winds up without purpose. He tries building structures. Structures. Look at verse 4. He says, I made great works. And he means it. I built houses, not one, multiple. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. Now, Solomon, you'll know, you know this, I think, was the, the front man for building the temple of God. What an elaborate house that was. Something you could say, hey, look it, put my name on that baby. That's a pretty spectacular thing. In 1 Kings chapter 7 and verse 1, it tells us it took him 13 years to build his own house. And it's not because he got bored and didn't finish. That's how elaborate this thing was. 13 years of using his resources and manpower to build his house, and it took 13 years. Is this a nice house, do we think? What do you think? Pretty nice? Better than yours? Probably better than mine. I like my house. I'm thankful for it. Didn't take 13 years to build that baby. Probably put it up in a week. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm sure not. But So he builds all these houses. And then in 1 Kings chapter 7 and verse 8, he builds houses for his wives. Now, I don't think he built 700 houses. Maybe he did. I, I don't know. I've, I was trying to figure this out. Did he build a house for every wife? 700 wives. A, they have a lot of different desires, right? Like the, the curtains aren't the same from one house to the next, right? We're not going to put up a plat of houses. They're all going to look exactly the same with all the same de decor in them. It doesn't work that way. The woman has to make a house a home, so he's really working at this thing. However many houses he builds, he builds a bunch. Then, in 2 Chronicles chapter 8, listen to this. He built cities. He built cities. Have any of you built a city? He's pursuing pleasure and satisfaction in the building of things. He builds the temple of God. He builds his own house. He builds his houses, the houses of his wives. And then he builds cities. He's got, he's, he's got to have found pleasure in this. Look, can, look at Solomonitis or Solomonian. This is, this is the, the metropolis of Solomon. Here we are. Walk through it. See my place. Not going to get the job done. He's pursuing it. He's pursuing this hard not only that, he tries landscaping, gardening, and agriculture. Look at the end of verse 4 again. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Now, have you been to some of these wonderfully preserved locations in our country? And you walk on this, this trail, and it, you know, there's a streaming uh, stream there, and you see the, the wildlife all about, and you think, man, this is beautiful. And there's a, there's a park, there's a, uh, a green rolling meadows over here. It's just gorgeous. Well, Solomon made these for himself because he is going hard after pleasure. 
we can't do this. We don't, we don't have the resources to do this. Daniel Aiken notes, Solomon induced in the best architecture, the best agriculture, and the best of engineering. He had it all. He had it all. Not only this, he has people serving his every whim. Look at the next verse, verse 7. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. There's a commercial not too long ago where this guy's like sitting on this chair and he's like commanding all of his friends to do stuff around his house. Thinking, see this guy? And I'm thinking, I, I, think I, I think I should do that. When my kids come home from work or, whatever, or school or whatever, I'm like, hey, go get me and go do this. Come on, bring it on over. He's got, he doesn't have to do anything anymore. He already worked hard in building his buildings and, and laying out his landscapes and, and making his parks. Now he has people just serving his every fancy. Not only this, he has material possessions and money beyond compare. Look again at verse 7. In the middle of the verse, I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Stop right there. In Second Chronicles chapter 9 and verse 27, listen to the, to the amount of Solomon's wealth. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. Try to let that sink in for a second. There are a lot of stones in Jerusalem. This is the vastness, just a little taste of his lavish wealth. All right, well, that's pretty cool. He has entertainment at his disposal. Chapter 2, verse 8 now. It says, in the middle of the verse, I got... I got singers, both men and women. Solomon didn't just go to the concert, buy the t-shirt, buy the DVD or CD. He didn't just have YouTube on a continuous loop. He bought the band. Oh, I love what you're doing with this thing. Hey, you're mine. Come on over. At every waking moment, I can call upon you and you can come and entertain me. Men and women singers, I just want you to make me feel good. 24 hours a day and seven days a week. And you think, he must be doing pretty well. This has got to be a lot of fun. Well, it is. Not only all of these, he has all the women, and delights of his sensual desires. Look at the last phrase of verse 8. And many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Well, the Bible tells us in 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 3 that he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. I don't want to be rude and I don't want to be crude, but he's included this for a purpose. There is not one fantasy of Solomon's mind that went 
unchecked. Color of skin, color of eyes, size, shape, the whole nine yards, the whole 10 yards, the whole 100 yards, add on the end zones, the whole 120 yards. He's got everything from side to side, top to bottom. He has everything that he could possibly desire. This is what it tells us. He had it all, verses 9 and 10. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. And he really enjoyed it. He did. Don't lie. Don't lie and say he didn't have fun. He had fun with the feasts. He had fun with the wine. He had fun with the women. He had fun with his projects. He had fun with his landscape, his parks, his waters. He had fun with it all. It was an absolute blast. Did you know that God is not opposed to pleasure? Did you know that? Why do you think he made the creation so beautiful? Why do you think he made Eve so beautiful? It was not a mistake. Why so many varieties of food? So many tastes in this world. It's not because God is anti-taste and anti-enjoyment and anti-pleasure. As Solomon's argument progresses, he's going to explain that God has given us many things to bring us pleasure. There are so many attempts at outlining the book of Ecclesiastes, and the one that I feel most comfortable in is the one that ends the first section in chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, and ends the second section in chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, and the third of which ends, uh, third section which ends in chapter 8, verses uh, 15, 16, 17, to the end of that chapter. And then the last bookend is the, the conclusion of the book, Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14, etc. These breaks is letting us know something. Every one of these main sections, he's letting us know, and I'm going to read them very quickly in just a moment. He's letting us know that God has given us good gifts to enjoy. This book is not only about purposelessness or not being able to grasp onto purpose. He's actually letting us know there's so much joy in this life to be had. If, if, You're not living simply under the sun with a world perspective and a world wisdom and a world self-indulgence, but recognizing that there's so much more and greater joys to be had if you'll look beyond the sun. Let's look, please, at these these sections. Verse 24, chapter 2, verse 24 There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from Him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? Pleasure. For to one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. 
But to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity. It's hard to figure out. And it's striving after wind. Chapter 5, look at verses 18 and following. Chapter 5, verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find what? Enjoyment in all my toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given to him, to him for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and positions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Look now at chapter 8. In verse 15, And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Look at chapter 9, verse 7 and following. Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no joy or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you're going. When you're dead, those pleasures, those pleasures are gone. There's other things for those that know God. We'll talk about those in a minute. But, but during the days of your life, there's, there's a certain select set of joys. And God wants us to enjoy them. God wants you to enjoy your wife. God wants you to enjoy your husband. God wants you to enjoy your kids, your house, your car, the food. He wants you to enjoy these things. He has given us richly all things to enjoy, 1 Timothy chapter 6 tells us. It's a gift from God in these few days that we traverse this earth under the sun. God is not anti-joy. He's not anti-pleasure. There are, however... Ways that we can make pleasure cross a boundary. We call that trespassing, right? Do not trespass. Well, God gives us boundaries to our joys. And when we trespass over those boundaries, we call that sin. God calls that sin. The Bible calls that sin. And those joys that then are just feeble and fleeting pleasures that last just for a season, those do not satisfy, those do not bring the kind of joy that we're looking for. While God has given us all things richly to enjoy, we can cross a line into materialism, which God calls covetousness, which he also calls idolatry. You see, having things is a good thing. God entrusts to us a stewardship of, of possessions. This is good. 
You should enjoy those possessions. You should use them well. Enjoy them with you and your family. Share them with others. Save for a rainy day. All those things. But when we hoard or we squander mindlessly, we've crossed a line into idolatry. While God has given us fine drinks to enjoy, He warns of the hazards of substances. We call that what? Drunkenness. Or some people call it alcoholism. We'll call it drunkenness, if you don't mind. God has given the pleasures of sex for a couple that has taken the marriage vows. Any sexual activity outside of that bond is called fornication or adultery. You see, these good things that God gives us to enjoy when exercised outside of the boundaries that He's given are sinful and they do not give lasting sustenance. The list could go on and on. When we cross the line from enjoying God's gifts to trying to extract from these gifts more than they're capable of providing, we distort God's good gifts. He wraps it up back in chapter 2 and verse 11. Chapter 2 and verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And look! He says, and behold. And behold! <laughs> he says, and look! Here it is. Ready? Look! All was vanity. Didn't give life purpose. I couldn't grab onto it. Life is still transient, temporary. And striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained. Gained, that's that term again. The, the plus column. You get the minus column and the plus column. Well, Solomon, I think you have a few pluses in there. You got all these houses. I don't have a park. I don't have gardens. I don't have uh, these vast pools to water my gardens and to go swimming in. I don't own all this. You've got something in the plus column. No. No, it doesn't, it doesn't provide a sustaining purpose and it doesn't provide a sustaining satisfaction. He's letting us know. Daniel Aiken captures this very well. It's going to be shared on the screens beside you as long as that one's working. If not, look over that way. Solomon concludes his search for pleasure by saying he denied himself nothing. He had the most success, the best houses, the most possessions, the richest lifestyles, the most sophistication, the finest wines, the most incredible parties and feasts, the greenest lawns, the best servants, more money than we could possibly imagine, military fame, prosperity, endless entertainment, and as much sexual pleasure as anyone could ever indulge in. And he says it was empty. So I want to ask you, what hope do you have on your $80,000 salary? Maybe you make more. Maybe you make less. It doesn't matter. It's not the amount. The amount doesn't get the job done. Indulge, indulge, indulge. Feels great while you're indulging. And then there's a turning point. There's a turning point somewhere in there where you start to feel sick. Sick from the food. 
Sick from a new person in your bed? Sick from another substance? I can't believe I did this again? When will I ever stop this? Another time where you have no money left at the end of the week. I exhausted all my resources. It doesn't matter how much money and how much sex and how much drink and how much food. It will not satisfy you. It will always come up vain and air burgers. Every time. Every time. What hope do you have? One more party. Your biggest party. Your biggest party is less entertaining, less gluttonous, less hedonistic than Solomon's Monday. A little bigger house. Will it take 13 years to build? This is not to say you shouldn't have a party or buy a house. It's not to say you shouldn't get a bigger house. Just don't expect lasting satisfaction or enduring pleasure from these. While we know that Solomon's pursuits were riddled with sin. Yeah? Everyone's clear on this, right? His pursuits were riddled with sin. There is an important phrase used two times in this passage that we must understand. In verse 3, he says, My heart still guiding me with wisdom. He sought to cheer his heart with wine, but he didn't go all unhinged. It wasn't another day and another day and another day and another day and another day unending of binges on alcohol where he's losing his mind. Verse 9, he says, Also my wisdom retain, uh, remained with me. Now, that's, this is not to say that Solomon was allowing biblical wisdom to guide him. I'm talking about common wisdom. So, all right, I'm, I'm testing this out. This is a test. It's a test of the emergency broadcast system. If this were not a test, you would hear some more information coming after. He's testing things. He's testing with wisdom, and now he's testing with pleasure. But he was listening and paying attention and journaling. All right, I did this. How, how did it come out? I did this. How'd that turn out? I did this. How'd it turn out? He's paying attention. So what we want to notice is this. Pursuing purpose must be in coordination with wisdom. Pursuing purpose must be in coordination with wisdom. Whilst Wisdom does not produce purpose in and of itself. Solomon's already discovered this. It's necessary in guiding our pursuit of ultimate, ultimate purpose. So turn now to Proverbs chapter 4, please. So Proverbs is the book to your left. So take a left, find Proverbs chapter 4. By talking about wisdom here, I am not saying that Solomon allowed biblical wisdom to guide him in this process but rather that he did not abandon all sense as he examined whether self-indulgence would give life the purpose that he sought. However, as we look at the situation these many years later and judge, we want to take what he discovered and what we have all experienced to lesser degrees than Solomon and add biblical wisdom so that we can avoid the emptiness frustration, sorrow, and sin that Solomon experienced. Take a look at Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23. This is a command. Solomon is the, is the penman here. He's trying to encourage his, his own son. 
Keep your heart with all vigilance or diligence, for from it, the heart, flow forth the springs of life. From your heart, you will know how to live. This is where the the real issues of life are resolved, not out there, but in here. Guard your heart, for out of it spring forth the real issues of life. What do we guard our heart with? Wisdom. Psalm 90 says this in verses 10 and 12. The years of our life are 70, and even by reason of strength, 80. Some of you have already outlived this. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. What Solomon concluded, from his experimentation, we can conclude from the biblical record. Isn't that true? Biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom warns us about fleeting pleasures. I want for us to look at a few passages, so let's work hard together. Ready? First of all, 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, you'll find that on page 993 of one of our church Bibles. 1 Timothy chapter 5. In this passage, Paul is instructing Timothy about a group of people in the church. They're called widows. Widows. And there was, it was an actual position in the church. Someone was actually registered as a widow in the church. They had to reach certain criteria. They were certain many years old and they have been, they've lost a spouse and there's no children to take care of them, and they serve the Lord with their lives. This is the criteria for being considered a widow of the church on the church's role, essentially. Listen to what he says as a warning to these that would be considered widows. Verses 5 and 6 of 1 Timothy chapter 5. She who was truly a widow left all alone. This is a true statement about her. She has set her hope on God. And, this is true about her, she continues in supplications and prayers night and day. This is the true definition of a widow. Verse 6. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. So she's not, she's not a qualifier for being on the church's rolls as a widow because she has made an exchange. He contrasts Hoping in God over against hoping in stuff. Self-indulgence. The the widow indeed who serves God and loves God and trusts God places her life at His disposal. The one who hopes in stuff indulges herself. You see the difference? Hope for God, hope versus stuff. Look at chapter 6 of the same book. 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's an incredible passage. Solomon would readily agree with what is spoken forth in verses 9 and 10 of 1 Timothy 6. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 
It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let's look at the contrasts here. Verse 9, we're hoping for security. But what do you get from verse 9? The end is ruin and destruction. You see it? Verse 10 has a contrast as well. What are you hoping for with this love of money? I just want some happiness. And the end result of this love of money is not happiness, but being pierced through. That is, that's from back to front. Pierced through with many, what? Sorrows. That's the opposite of happiness. Pursuing happiness in these ways will always result in something you didn't want. Solomon tells us through his experience. The Bible tells us through its wisdom. Look at James chapter 4. James 4. We'll find that on page 1012 of one of our church Bibles, beginning in verse 3. He says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to do what? To spend it on your passions. This is not cool. You adulterous people. Spending on your passions. Self-indulgence, God says, makes us adulterers. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can experiment with self-indulgence, but do it, do it with proper knowledge going in. You are exchanging hope in God for hope in an impersonal, uncaring object. When's the last time the world really cared for you? When's the last time you pulled out a $100 bill and it hugged you back? What does all the stuff care about you? It's inanimate objects. It doesn't care about anything. It might give you a little happy feeling. It might make your taste buds water. It might stimulate your senses. It doesn't love you. It doesn't care. So go on and love the world. But know this. It will not love you back. When you love the world instead of God, you are exchanging an impersonal object that could care less about you for the one who created you, through who sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross to pay for your sin, who is willing to adopt you into his family and call you his son to give you all the rights and privileges of sonship, to, to give you an eternal home with him forever. You're exchanging all of this for an air burger. The Apostle John had something to say about this, friends. In 1 John chapter 2, just take a right. 1 John chapter 2, it's on page 1021 of one of our church Bibles. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15, listen to what God's Word says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is what? Passing away along with its pleasures, desires, enjoyment. It's all going to go. Wait, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. All the stuff, all the junk, all the possessions, all the tastes, all the sensations, it's all going to come to nothing. 
Biblical wisdom warns us against self-indulgence. This leads us to our final point, and as it's, it's the most important point. Ultimate pleasure comes as a gift from our always satisfied, joy-filled God. Ultimate pleasure comes as a gift from our always satisfied, joy-filled God. The Bible tells us in James 1, 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and it comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no what? Variation or shadow due to change. In other words, God is always the same and His gifts are always perpetual. They're always coming from His character that is immovable, immovable, unchangeable, immutable. Listen to the way God describes the future of His people in, in Psalm 16, 11. Listen to this. This is the key. You make me know. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are what? Pleasures forevermore. This is not the only place it tells us. Just a little later in the book of Psalms. Psalm 21.6 says this, For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. What kind of joy? The joy of your presence. The joy that lasts comes from God Himself. I want to paint a picture for us as we conclude our time together. Still a little work to do. You're going to have lunch in a few minutes right here. You don't have any very far to go. Don't think about lunch right now. I want to talk to you about a feast that's coming, though. I want to talk to you about a feast that's coming. Look at Revelation 19. Look at Revelation 19, please. Just taking a right. If you're using one of our church Bibles, you'll find it on 1039. Beginning in verse 5. Revelation 19, 5. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you were to read in the book of 1 Kings about the, the bountiful feasts of Solomon and how many oxen were slaughtered and all the animals slaughtered and all the food provided for all of these people that were in Solomon's uh, debt who, who worked for him. If you read that and you see, this, this party is unfathomable. I want to tell you about a feast that makes that one look like child's play. When we're talking about a feast put on by the king himself, the one who made heaven and earth and all that in them is, the, the one who made the oxen is the one who's putting on this spread before his people. It is a feast. It is a feast like no other. It is a feast that will go on for all the days of eternity. It is a feast that will satisfy. It will not turn your stomach. You will not go home puking. 
You will not go home uh, uh, feeling sick. You will go home. You won't go anywhere. You'll be there in the presence of the Lamb. That is a pleasure feast like no other. Look a little further, please. Chapter 21. I wonder if you think Solomon can outparty God. I don't think so. Can you outparty God? I don't think so. Revelation 21. Look at verses 10 and following. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me, he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clearest crystal. It had a great high wall and 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, on the west, three gates, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Look a little further, verse 18. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth something that I can't read, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophras, I don't know how to say that either, the eleventh jacinth and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl in the streets of the city. Was, or the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Oh, wait a second. Solomon built cities. Did it look like this? Can you outbuild God? Look at chapter 21. Still there. Look at verses 22 to 26. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory to it, and its gates will never shut by day, and there was no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Is there a better nation than this that's being described here? Is there a better city? Is there a better building? Is there a better temple? What's the answer? No. 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 Look at chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the, of the street of the city, also on either side of the, the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Ooh, pools of water you have there, Solomon. Oh, those, are, those are pretty spectacular, but not nearly as good as the water of life that comes from the throne. Oh, those are some very nice fruit gardens you have and a nice vineyard. Oh, that's very nice. But it's nothing like the tree of life that yields its fruit in its season. I wonder what fruit tastes better. Solomon's fruit from his lavish gardens or the fruit that grows on that tree that is sustained and nourished by God himself. I wonder what's better. No question, right? Solomon had the best of the best that this world has to offer. God God blows it out of the water. It's not even 
It's not even a competition. Verse 17, same chapter, Revelation 22, 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Will you experience this ultimate and unending pleasure? Will you? How can you? It is through the amazing mercy and grace of God through God the Son. He lived, was crucified, was buried, and God raised him from the dead to triumph over the futile pursuits of this life, but more so to triumph over our sin, to triumph over the judgment of our sin, and to give us life, life that is far more abundant. I wonder, do you have to wait for this kind of pleasure? Do you? Do I have to navigate my life right now in misery? No. 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 The pleasures of God can be experienced in time and space. We can enjoy God and His gifts now with little foretastes. Listen to these passages and we'll be through. Psalm 4-7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. We already read Psalm 90, a portion of it. Listen to verses 14 to 17. God, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as, you, as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And you'll recognize this from Psalm 23, the very last verse. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me, pursue me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He says that mercy and, and goodness will pursue us. The same word is used when Abraham found out that Solomon had been taken by an invading nation and he start, takes an army and he's pursuing Lot, God is pursuing us with his goodness and mercy all the days of our lives. The Holy Spirit has been given to the believer, God's people, as a down payment, a first installment. It is through walking with the Spirit and being filled by the Holy Spirit that we experience here and now the joy of our eternal future. You want pleasure that will not come up empty? You want pleasure that won't leave you feeling like you're watching your favorite movie for the 120th time, but, but pleasure that endures and is real and is as great as the first time you experienced it? Draw near to God and He will draw near to you and His pleasures will fill you and overflow. 
friend, there's no other way to have this experience of pleasure that doesn't stop other than to know God through knowing Jesus and walking in the power of the Spirit. I need him. Do you? Let's pray. Father, you are so good. You are so good to us. Father, please don't let us exchange the joys that you have for us for the joys that someone else, something else presents to us. Do not let us steal away true, lasting joy for temporary, frivolous pleasure. Help us to find our real joy, sustenance, satisfaction, and pleasure in you and you alone. And may it abound for your glory that others too would know of your greatness and your joy that they also could have if they would know you through Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.